And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show and enjoy the dulcet tones of a real uh, radio podcast studio. Today I am joined by writer, podcaster, co-founder of the Mamma Mia Women's Network and author of the book Work, Strife, Balance, Mia Friedman. Hey, Rach. Hi. I am so pleased I get to do it in this um, egg carton covered room. (laughs) We've converted the smallest office that was too small to really even be an office in our workspace into a podcast studio and one we've got in Melbourne is even smaller. But where do you usually record? In between three couch cushions. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's another podcast that I do called um, uh, Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay, which is about Trump and, and US politics. And mm-hmm. I do it with my friend, Amelia Lester, who's based in Washington. And because of the time difference, she has to do that in her night and I have to do it in my super early morning. So we are both each at home. Mm. So on Sunday morning at 7am, there I was under a blanket and yep. she was under a blanket. Yep. <laughs> and it's just, and then my dog's like, whoa, we're under blanket. This is fun. Yeah. And tries to come with me. And it's, um, this is luxurious. You're right. It I've, is. I've done both. It's I really, do, I still do both. It's really lovely. Um, thank you so much for joining me on this show. I know you are a super busy lady, so I do appreciate your time. Yeah. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people on this show where the sort of career trajectory ends up being, in hindsight, quite logical because, you know, they've sort of taken job to job to job. And the thing that I really liked about your story is that it's a great example of in the middle of a successful career, necessity being the mother of invention and you taking sort of matters into your own hands to create a sort of career for yourself, which I think in the media business, like yes, I have as well. Not many people do this. There's there's often a situation, I think, when people run out of work where they think I'm just either going to wait for the phone to ring or I might just have to go and do something else. And some some people sit down and go, no, how could I translate my skills into something that's going to actually mean that I'm going to have a worthwhile career that I have more control over? Mm. So I want to go right back to the beginning and, and just ask you whether this, obviously not maybe running your own media company wasn't the goal, but was sort of writing media, journalism, mags, was that always the goal for you even when you were a little kid? So it's so true what you say about the things that you see in hindsight and that's how you see the through line. I think women's media always was and that's taken different forms through my career but it's the only career I've ever had is working in women's media. Um, Even when I was at Channel 9, I was creating um, a women's daytime show. So um, with mags, with TV and then now with with Mamma Mia and digital and podcasting and everything that we do online – I always wanted to work in whatever I was most interested in. Mm -hmm. So I guess because I was a a voracious consumer of women's media and and when I was growing up there was only one type of women's media and that was women's magazines. There literally was nothing else. Of course I, I wanted to work in what I was most obsessed with. And then as that changed, you know, towards the end of my time in women's magazines where I wasn't looking at magazines anymore, I wasn't excited by the magazines from around the world that would would plonk onto my desk every day, I was moving online and that was feeling like that's where the zeitgeist was going because I have a a weird ability to be just – just at the front of the ma- – like I've got very mainstream mass tastes, but I'm just – I'm one of the early sheep. Mm. I'm not one of those people who are right down the road going, here's where we should go. I'm not that person. Uh, um, but I am just 
where whatever I'm interested in, I know that there are a lot of people are going to be interested in it really, really soon. And for me, in the early 2000s, it became digital. And I tried hard to get my print publishers to understand that there was a Armageddon coming and they just couldn't. And that frustrated the hell out of me. And I left. And it's frustrated the hell out of me from the outside and, and saddened me that some of the iconic brands that I loved as a reader and then worked on um, when I was in mags like Dolly and Cleo have not made that transition mm. and, and have fallen away. I mean, they were iconic brands. Yeah, Cleo, huge, man, Dolly. Huge. How can they have been left to collapse? Like why, had they made a better transition to digital, there might not have been room f- for us to launch Mamma Mia. Mm, that's true. and it's So int- I've kind of benefited from something that's made me also really sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting the timing that you have had because you, you have sort of been at just at the, at the wave at the right time to catch it. And I think that's often a big part of the battle too. You yeah. have to be able to see those things because a lot of people don't see it until people have already jumped on the bandwagon. And by that stage, you're just too late to build yeah. something really big. Well, as you know, when you work in a big company and you have an idea – it's impo- almost impossible to, to make it happen yeah. because there's so many layers and so many people you've got to convince. And to be fair, it's not your money that, that you have to put behind it. But that's why for for as soon as I made that transition from working for someone else to working to myself, I was immediately much, much poorer. Mm. But I was able to ride that wave, which I just couldn't to the same extent when I was in magazines. So, for example, two years ago when I was like, guys, podcasts. Yeah. And everyone in here even rolled their eyes at me. But because, you know, I'm one of the owners of the business, I could go, no, we have to do this. And I just ignored them and I just did it Mm. behind the scenes. And, you know, that was another example of, I guess, knowing what women want before they know they want it. Yeah. Just from my own tastes. Yeah. I guess you have to to consume a lot to... Oh, my God, I consume so much. But I'm also very... I, I sit outside myself and one of the one of the core values that we have in the company and something that Lisa Wilkinson taught me in my early days of magazines was always walk in her shoes. So always walk in the shoes, the ears, the eyes, the hearts of your reader or your listener or your viewer. And for me, I know, and what that's always done is that I, I let myself just uh, surf the waves and follow my interests and follow my curiosity. But then there's a part outside of me that observes my behaviour. So when I became aware of how much I was listening to podcasts and how I was able to use um, audio to triple the amount of time that I was consuming information mm. because there was a cap on how much time I could look at my phone and I didn't want to keep reading, but I had more time and more hours that I was hungry for information. And radio wasn't wasn't ticking that box and giving me what I wanted, but podcasts were. So I went, oh, okay, well, if that's happening to me, I'm bog standard common. That's going to be the same for other women. Mm. When you started out, at, at, you did uh, work experience at Clio at 19. Yeah. Had you done any work before then? Had you gone to university? Mm. Had you? Was there anything else that was on your radar before that? Um, no, I'd, I'd taken a year off. <clears throat> I'd taken a gap year and um, spent some time living in Italy with some girlfriends. And um, then I came back to start a communications degree at UTS. And um, I just hated it. Mm. I just hated it. It was very theoretical you know UTS then had no campus life so there was no kind of social aspect that was enjoyable for me and I don't know I just I wanted to be in the world and in the workforce so I did it really badly and really half-heartedly for a year Mm. and phoned it in and um, started doing work experience at the end of that first year of uni 
How did that come about? Was that a, t- a competitive thing to get into or tough to get into? I wrote a letter to someone that I knew who worked in the same building as Lisa Wilkinson. Oh, who, not even at Cleo, just in... No, it's just someone who worked in that building, oh, right? Okay, and I, I, I'd, like, to me, that was Disneyland. Like, the fact, the idea that all the magazines, because I bought every magazine, mm-hmm. every, like, Cleo was my mag, and as Dolly had been when I was younger, but, and Lisa was my girl, but I bought everything. I bought Woman's Weekly, I bought New Idea, I bought everything, because I was just in love with the medium. Mm. And so, when I met someone um, whose dad actually worked in that building... I was like, oh, my God, there's my inn. So I wrote this letter and I caught the bus into the city and I went to the reception desk and I delivered my letter, my handwritten letter, which was so original and said things like, I really love Lisa Wilkinson and Cleo is really amazing and I just really want to do anything to work there. And and he, bless him, passed it on and it was added to the pile of many letters that Lisa get like that, gets like that. Um, and I got a call from Lisa's office and, of course, being the arrogant 19-year-old, arrogant partly and also just naive, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be offered a job. Okay. <laughs> because why wouldn't you offer <laughs> yeah. someone with no experience yeah, and a year's out of uni, <laughs> not, not even out of uni, a year's uni, yeah. um, a job. So I walked in and just breathing the air that Lisa Wilkinson was breathing was just, it would have been enough for me. But, you know, she sat down and she looked at my letter and my CV which was non-existent I was like well, I've been a waitress I'd worked at Woolies mm. worked at Cherry Lane do you remember Cherry Lane you're what probably too Cherry young Lane? Cherry Lane was like a sports girl oh gosh of I its time. that no and um, she said so you went to Askham which is a, a mm-hmm. private girls school in Sydney you live at home you live in Vaucluse which I did with my parents which is like a pretty posh suburb and you've just spent a year in Italy tell me why I shouldn't hate you Oh, wow. And that was Lisa's way of going, are you just some rich sport princess? Yeah. And it's so Lisa. And I don't even know what I said. Probably something, again, completely unoriginal. I love you and Cleo. (laughs) But she asked me some questions and my answers must have satisfied her because then she said, look, do you want to come in and do a couple of weeks work experience assisting our features editor? And I remember so clearly as she walked me out of her office, she said, magazines might not be the right form of journalism for you. They, they, they have to be in your blood. For you, it might be something else. It might be TV or, or newspapers or radio. Um, and they were in my blood. And I knew that before I'd even left the office. Mm. And what was interesting is, 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 is the difference between the glossiness of the magazine and the reality of the office itself yeah um and back then magazine editors weren't glamorous so lisa uh just had a very ordinary photo of her in her editor's letter it wasn't like they are today which are like they could be models yeah it was like her in it wasn't exactly a reindeer jumper but it was almost (laughs) that and she had no makeup and she had this long straight brown hair and she wore glasses and and that the floor, the carpet was coming up and it was held down by masking tape and there was shit falling from the ceiling and there were cockroaches and I couldn't have been happier. Mm. I could not have been happier and I sat in a plastic chair outside the toilets um, and there were models there for a casting and I thought that was just incredible. And, you know, for the next five years, I got to work with Lisa about for the next three years. I just wanted to sit at her knee and learn everything I could from her and the things I did learn from her in the time that I worked for her and she did give me a job after about three months 
or four months of me interning. Firstly, I learned the value of working for free and interning and that's mm. why I highly believe in it and, and I'm very passionate about why it's a really, really good idea because she's right. It might not have been for me. Yeah. I might have gone, oh, I don't like this. Mm. But um, You've also got to find who's hungry for it, especially in a yes. very competitive industry. And I think if somebody's yes. willing to put in the time and the effort and they're happy yeah. to do it, not put, to be paid for it, yeah. there can be a complacency that comes along with a paycheck that makes you go, oh, God, this is my job and whatever. But if totally. that person is still sitting there after three months and they are hungry you totally. are like you will survive totally i mm. mean we've got interns that get up at 4 30 in the morning and travel from wherever mm. to get here we've got people who who come from over interstate and stay in a hostel for two weeks and wow. maybe they go oh not interested which is great but what i think people need to understand in this whole working for free thing and you know magazines very much live and breathe on, on interns. I remember when someone would come around when I was editing, sometimes people would come around and do like a head count, like someone from finance or whatever. Oh, yeah. um, and you would have to hide all the work experience and interns oh, and <laughs> unpaid people under chairs and behind desks and stuff. Um, you know, things that go on and on and on. Of course, there's exploitation involved. Mm, there can yeah. be. But if you don't feel like you're being exploited, if you feel like you're learning something oh. – by all means, stick around because as I did, when a job became available, I was the first in line. Mm. Those jobs aren't advertised mm. and everybody hates recruitment. Everybody hates recruitment because as an employer, there's a big risk. You hire someone, you look at their CV, whatever, you have a few job interviews, you're taking a big risk. It might not work out. But when there's someone who you've seen around, you've seen how they perform, it's much lower risk for your employer. So, and also you get experience. Like I'm much more interested when I hire someone in the experience that they've had rather than the degrees that they've got. Yeah. Degrees don't really mean anything to me. Anyway, so... Um, yeah, that, that's how I got my start. And, and Cleo and Lisa, some of the lessons that I learned with her, I still apply every single day. So did you, during that three months of sort of work experience interning, were you just, Miss, I'm putting my hand up. Oh, God, Could yes. you show me that? Could I learn that? Were you just soaking oh, up God, everything? Yes. Yeah. God, yes. So I did my two weeks in a row and then I asked if I could come back once, one day a week because I've had other jobs and I was still doing uni and she agreed And because I, I knew someone else who'd done that. They'd come in once, one day a week so I knew that was possibly an option. And it was a tiny office so it's not like, you know, they could just have all these people around and there might, might have been 20 people in the editorial team. Um, so it was small. Um, and so I came in a day a week and then I just started coming in on other days hoping that no one would say, what are you doing here? Why don't you go home? <laughs> and I wanted in my naive way, well, there's truth in this too, I, I wanted to create a Mia-shaped hole so that I, when I wasn't there it was inconvenient yeah. and I thought then they can just give me a job that's before I knew about things like headcounts and mm -hmm. budgets and FTEs and and I thought that if Lisa liked me she could just make a job for me right. of course it's not that simple but um, I did whatever was asked whatever was asked oh my god yes um, and it's funny when I when, <laughs> when I became an editor and then we'd sometimes get work experience we'd always get work experience at Cosmo and there would be interns that would – work experience that would be like come and expect to sit in on cover line meetings and go to fashion week and have long conversations, daily conversations with me and were horrified if you asked them to go to the courier dock or mm. get someone a coffee. And fun fact, um, there was at one time a, an anonymous blog um, – with people who – about ACP or what's not called now Bauer where all the magazines are housed and where Cosmo was and people would leave sort of bitchy comments about things that had happened there or things that they'd heard in the lift or whatever. And this one girl went, I interned at Cosmo 
And this one time I was sent out to get a banana for Mia Friedman's son. <laughs> and that became an item in the newspaper on a Sunday. Oh, good Lord. And God love my mum. She texted me and she goes, darling, bananas are so nutritious. <laughs> good mothering. <laughs> but that girl is now the editor of Cosmo. No. Yeah. I wondered – I only know this because um, someone uh, sent me a photo of the editor's letter. Of course, I, I don't, I'm not Cosmo's demographic. I don't look at magazines and certainly not Cosmo anymore. But um, And it said – this girl who's the editor, whose name I can't remember, said, you know, and I interned here and I had to – part of my, some of my tasks included getting bananas for people. Oh, and I'm wow. like, is it Banana Girl? <laughs> and I think it is Banana Girl. The interesting thing with this business in all aspects of it is that there is a shininess from the outside looking in and and sort of an attitude I think people outside, especially young people coming in, think that they need to employ to be a part of it. And what yeah. you actually realise when you're inside the building is that the people that survive and get to the top of the tree are the ones that will really pull their sleeves up, work their ass yeah. off, put their head down and really are happy to do the work. Yeah. And that is the consistent message, particularly in this, you know, chatting to people that in, in this show, that is the consistent message. It is the people who have wanted to do the work have worked their asses off. I think sometimes there is a certain attitude that people think you need within the business that you don't need, like it's the opposite of what you need. You want to be easygoing you want to be agreeable you want people who are there for the right reasons so about two years after I started I was only 21 I was offered two editorships I was offered the editorship of Girlfriend magazine and then when I went and told Lisa she said well we're also we're launching Cleo in New Zealand would you like to be the editor of Cleo in New Zealand the launch editor of Cleo and I was 21 it's like man wow and I said no to both. It's the smartest thing I've ever done and I'm still very impressed with 21-year-old me mm. who had the the foresight to turn both of those interviews down, uh, both of those jobs down because I knew I had more to, a lot more to learn and I wasn't ready. And even though my ego would have loved to say I'm an editor at 21, I wanted to sit at Lisa's knee for longer and learn from her. And I turned them both down and I said, I want to stay, but I don't want to be beauty any editor anymore because I cannot go to a lunch or a launch. I just want to sit at my desk and eat a sandwich and be in as many meetings with you as possible so I can learn as much from you as possible. Mm. So what uh, what do you think it was about? I know sometimes it's hard to pass this judgment yeah. because it's you. So, But why do you think at such a young age, because even at 24 when you were editor, you were yeah. the youngest Cosmo editor internationally at that age. So that's still extremely young. So at 21 to be offered a job as editor, what do you think it was about you at that age that Lisa, who is a smart, smart cookie, saw in you, here is a, a person who could do this? Yeah, I have no idea. It's a hard, a hard question to answer, but um, Lisa could probably answer it better. But all I can say is that I'm a quick learner. Yeah, right. I learned from her. I had magazines and women's media in my blood because I'd been consuming it since I was probably 10 or 11 and I immersed I immersed myself in it you know mm. and I always had even before I worked at Clio yeah I, I I just took everything to heart that Lisa taught me and not to say that I haven't made so many mistakes and continue to make them now but I've got the ability to know what women want mm. yeah and, I guess and know how to create it and I guess because you were and still are the target audience. like Exactly. When you sat in the room with Lisa, you'd been consuming, you were the people, person that they were trying to reach out to. So that puts you in a unique position to be able to understand what 
they might want in the magazine. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so it but comes back to walking in her shoes. Mm. And I always wasn't – I was never trying to impress my peers or my friends or people I admired. I always had my eye on the prize of reaching women and making women feel better about themselves. I remember as an arrogant – kid marching into Lisa's office and saying we really need to stop doing diets they're bad for women and you know god love her Lisa one of her best qualities is that she listens to everyone and is really even and you know what the hell did I know Mm. um and she just listened to what I said you know but I, I challenged her in some ways in my incredible naivety but I've always had really strong views about about women and about ways in which the media make women feel bad about themselves and how that's just dumb. It's mm. dumb. For, it's not good for women, but it's also just not good for business mm. because what you are as an editor is a businesswoman. You know, you're not running a community service. You're making money for Kerry Parker at that yeah. time or at any time. Editors are businesswomen. And one of the things that shits me is the way the media often portrays magazine editors as being, you know, bimbos or fluffheads or mm. stupid or, you know, clicking around in the high heels they're smart they're running businesses they're running businesses with multi-million dollar turnovers in many cases and um they're running staff and and it, a magazine is a business so what was the the movement so beauty editor was your first yep. job then i was um lifestyle editor then i was features editor then i hit a ceiling and I expected I would just keep on moving up the rung to deputy and then to editor but Lisa left and my very good friend Wendy Squires who'd been sort of the rung above me she'd been deputy editor and I'd been features editor I just assumed that you know if you were number three and number two and then number one left then number two would move up to number one and number three would Mm -hmm. move up to number two and that's how it worked and I've been here the longest and I'm the next in line and um, Wendy, who was uh, had been a mentor to me and a friend and still is both of those things, she became the editor and I just assumed that I would step up. And she had to make the very, very difficult call of saying, no, I need to hire someone and put them above you. And it was someone with no magazine experience and I was horrified and mortified. And she said, look, you and I, our skills are too similar. I need someone as a deputy who has different skills to me and you've got more to learn. And one day you will thank me. And I was like, oh, no, thank you. Mm. And she was a thousand percent right. She was a thousand percent right. And so I sort of grumbled and, and I sat there and then, um, then she left and someone else was brought in and I was just, I'd become a bit disillusioned at that stage. So I decided I was going to move overseas and I'd, I'd had this thing. I've got to be a editor of Cleo before I was 25 and I was already 24 and it was clearly not going to happen or I was just about to turn 24 and I'd clearly stalled and I felt publicly humiliated by being passed over for promotion and I felt that I knew this magazine better than anyone and that I you know it was my dream and it wasn't going to happen so I was going to go overseas and I was going to move to New York and I was going to freelance over there and I was in the process of doing that when two things happened I was I met my now husband and I was offered the Cosmo editorship which I initially turned down oh really being the idiot that I was I was like 
Oh, but I don't want to be the editor of Cosmo. I want to be the editor of Cleo. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I'm just like, you idiot. Mm. How long were between turning it down and turning around and saying, I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting. <laughs> well, I ended up having um, Tracy Cox, who'd been the deputy editor of Cosmo and who'd, she'd written a, a sealed section story about oral sex tips, which had gone gangbusters and she'd been offered a book deal on the back of it. And these days she lives in the UK and she's this international sexpert. Um, oh, wow. I know. Tracy Cox is her real name. <laughs> anyway, I had coffee with her and I said, look, I've been edited, offered this job and I've turned it down and I don't know if I've done the right thing. And she gave me the best advice about making a decision. She goes, okay, so I want you to pretend that you're definitely taking the job. And then she's like, how do you feel? And I was like, um, I feel excited. I feel nervous. And then she goes, okay, I want you to think that you're definitely not taking the job. You've turned it down. It's no longer available. How do you feel? And I went, I feel disappointed. I feel a bit like I've stopped running before I reach the finish line. And she's like, well, there's your answer. And I think that was just such a great way to cut through to my gut feeling. And I think gut feelings get um, a bad rap for being a bit woo-woo and a bit gut feeling. But your gut feeling is just the sum total of everything you've learnt and everything you believe in your your life. Mm. Um, And it's sort of away from the rational brain. And it was a really good way to get to the nub of how I felt about something. And so I, you know, sheepishly rang... Pat Ingram back and said, oh, we talk about that job? Is it still available? <laughs> and um, I made a terrible mistake. Yeah. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> and then I started three months before I turned 25. So I ended up being an editor before I was 25, just of a different magazine. And I, I would have been a shit Cleo editor because I loved it too much. And I worshipped Lisa too hard. And I could never have filled her shoes. And I could never have done justice to it so I ended up just making Cosmo more like Cleo (laughs) yeah but that's a good thing I think sometimes though that desperation can be your biggest downfall like it can be an indication that you shouldn't be somewhere it because that kind of calm and confident kind of I don't need this I think it helps in a whole bunch of ways including like the anxiety that can be overwhelming and make you trip over yourself, you know? Like when you are a little less obsessed with something, you are more likely to approach it in a more calm and collected way. And I was very dispassionate about Cosmo. Like, of course I read it. I read everything because I loved mags, but I didn't have any feelings about it. And Cosmo wasn't a mag that at that time really had a heart and soul. It was successful and obviously internationally successful. But, you know, the editor who was then my boss, she was in her 50s at the time that she hired me and she was over it. She certainly mm. wasn't in the demographic. And so she was looking for someone who could do it justice. And that I left for the same reason, that I was no longer in the demographic and I was looking for someone that could do it justice too. But I guess that's a good thing because if you're not that passionate about it but you do understand magazines, you understand content, yeah. then it gives you the opportunity to turn it into something that you can be passionate yeah. about. Yeah. And then you've got your fingerprints all over it and you can create a new type of passion for something yeah. that you maybe thought you might be apathetic about. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't envy magazine editors now because I can't think of how what I would do as a magazine editor. Yeah, like I'm not, It's not like I'm from the outside throwing stones and going, you should do this, you should do that. I have no idea how you would make a magazine something that a woman or a young woman in particular would want to pay, I don't know, how much are they now, 750 or something, mm. for. I, I have no idea how they would do that. So mm. I, I'm, you know, in awe that they are. I suppose in, in conjunction with being the editor, there is a public profile that comes with that. And I certainly remember, I think probably the first time I, I saw you was when you used to go on the panel. Yeah, yeah I remember. the panel, which is what... An early version of the project, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. It was, it once was a, week. a fabulous I show. That show. It was such a good show. Yeah. 
and one of those, yeah, one of those ones that everybody used to tune in. And so I remember you all the time on there as the very pretty smart lady. Oh, that's <laughs> um, but you were, you, you sort of became a personality and, and I think it's still, maybe it happens less now. I guess we don't necessarily know in the public eye who editors of magazines are. I don't think are. if you ask someone to name a magazine editor, yeah. I don't think they could. Was that unique? I can't, I can't remember the time greatly, but was that were you unique to that or was Yeah, I um there weren't many magazine editors who were in the public eye. Yeah. They just sort of weren't. I mean, the editor of Cosmo of Clio when I started editing Cosmo was Deborah Thomas who was older and I knew how to give TV what they what it wanted. Mm-hmm. I knew how to deliver a soundbite. People were looking for Again, before social media and before everyone was the editor of their own content, people were looking for people who could speak on behalf Mm. of an entire gender or an entire demographic. (laughs) So it's like, what do women think? Like something would happen and a current affair would call me or Today Tonight would call me or whatever and want to send a crew in to get my comment on whatever it happened to be. Right. You know, Princess Diana's died or what do women think about, you know, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow getting a divorce or what do they think about, uh, you know some issue that had happened in the news relevant mm. to re- relevant to women what what do women think about Kate Langbrook breastfeeding on the panel yeah and that was the biggest scandal of of the times so I would often be the voice you know asked to be the voice and speak on behalf which is a weird thing but you know I, I learned how to do that and, mm. and, and it's a sort of a it just happened at that time that there weren't many other voices out there so I became a go-to because you know what it's like radio and tv will go to whoever gives a reliable soundbite mm. who they can depend on who will make it easy for them yeah who um and 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 I I was able to do that so you know it just sort of fed itself I guess was it something you enjoyed or something that you were like this is odd <laughs> I'm no it was I was I wasn't I, I am ambitious and I liked it yeah I liked it I, I liked um it was challenging it was different I've always liked performing so the show off in me mm-hmm. you know and who doesn't like being asked for their opinion yeah um what's true. not to like <laughs> and of course that was before social media so mm. you could say I mean again it's funny to think about that now and I've just recently been thinking to myself how delightful it is not to be on that circuit anymore of the project and the Today Show and you know what it's like, yeah. commentary, yeah. you're on that circuit and Paul yeah. Murray and all of those people and shows and I admire all those people that do but it became very unsatisfying to and empty to what do you think about Syria? What do you think about Donald Trump? What do you think about the budget? What do you think about refugees? What do you think about Pauline Hanson? Um what do you think about maternity leave? Like, what do you think about Julia Gillard? And there are some things, obviously, that I'm more knowledgeable about than others, but mostly you're being asked to deliver a snappy soundbite about a very complex issue that you are not an expert on or even close while wearing a shitload of makeup <laughs> at 7 in the morning or 10.30 at night. Mm. And how does that help the world? Mm. How is that interesting? Now that there's social media and everyone just has their opinions out there, like – I, I just don't. I just don't see. It, it, I found it unsatisfying for myself, and I found it um, sort of could be harmful in a way because it's like, what am I going to add to a conversation about the budget? What am mm. I going to add to a conversation about, you know, 
I've got opinions, sure, but so does everyone. Yeah, and you have, you end up. I had I'm doing a new podcast in a little while with a friend of mine who's a Australian, but he lives in the states. He does this kind yeah. of work as well in the states. And and our big frustration of doing this sort of stuff is you end up oversimplifying the issue. So the whole yeah. idea of the podcast is that we want to spend all of our time in the grey area, which is where life exists, but. In media, only the black and white exist when you're doing those sound bites on telly and stuff because yeah. you've only got time for black and white. Yeah. So you've either got to be staunchly this way or staunchly yep. that way. And the truth is that we're all a little bit in between. And unfortunately, I think the collective conversation has now gotten to the point where we're so – I think there's that's why there's so much anger and aggression be- behind people's points of view. And it's like, no, I can't understand your point of view. This is right. And I was like, well, hang on a second – I may not like what you say, but I want to listen to it and see if what you say to me in any way adjusts the calibration in my brain because I'm just picking up shit as I go along too, right? I don't know everything. I feel like I can't possibly read enough to be even mildly educated all of the time. And you're right, you get asked for opinions all the time and you've got kind of a shallow understanding of a lot of things, no deep understanding of of much. Um, But we seem to have gotten into this stage where it's like we all think that we can tie our opinion up in a beautiful little package with a bow on it and that's it and that's how it exists because that's kind of what telly tells us and it's totally it's frustrating it is frustrating because you just think gosh i really to to explain this and have a discussion about it we kind of need four and a half days straight on tv of non-stop talking and it's also we've lost the ability both on sort of tv and in the media and on social media to go i disagree with you here's what i think it's i disagree with you you're wrong you're a terrible human and you should die yeah yeah. And it's literally that. Yeah. And that's why I stopped doing Paul Murray and Paul is a good friend of both of ours. But mm. I don't need death threats. I yeah. don't need abuse. I don't want to have to have an opinion about everything. And the times that I've really messed up is when and, – and it's turned into social media disasters – and controversies, uh, I, I can think of two in, in particular, when I've been asked to comment on things I know nothing about and that are really complex issues. For example, when I was asked to to comment on the project about, you know, can you just deliver – and, and literally in the script it'll be 15 seconds chat yeah. out the back yeah. of a package on um, whether pedophiles can be rehabilitated. Yeah, right. And so in trying to make a sassy point, which I genuinely believe – you misspeak or you make an awkward analogy that doesn't land and then suddenly it's death threats. Mm. And I just didn't want to play that game anymore. And, and it's funny, even when you're on Q&A, there's no room for saying on, – on any show, there's no room for going, you know, I'm not really sure. Yes. Because that's not good television <laughs> and we know that and it's not good radio. And so on Q&A they say to you before, whatever, they, whatever the question is, whatever the topic, you must not say – I don't know. Mm. I don't know anything about that. Just try to say something. Say, give an anecdote. Give a personal opinion. Give a thought. And so, like, you'll be sitting there and it'll be so wind turbines (laughs) and rural (laughs) agricultural policy in, you know, the Murray River. Mia? And Tony Jones will go, Mia? And you'll just go... 
How am I on yeah. TV talking about this? <laughs> yeah, How so did this true. happen? It's so true. And who does this benefit? Yeah, yeah. What am I adding to the conversation what that to somebody who has no idea? And that's and I often find that hard because I, I feel a sense of respons- great responsibility in that situation. And quite often you'll get the sort of the rundown of what you're going to be talking to. And I swear to God, I spend so much of my life reading up on so because I'm terrified to ever go out on on set exposed and not know. I could never in a million years like know starting for your HSC every single day of my yeah. life. Every day, you know, because you do want to not be that person that adds nothing. But at the same time, how much can you learn about wind turbines in 45 minutes before you it's go on set? It's too stressful doing Q&A. So, yeah. so the first time I did it was um, was a women's panel and it was International Women's Day. And so they give you the broad areas. They don't give you the questions, but they give you the broad areas. These right. are the kinds of things we're going to be talking about. And so I'd studied, studied, studied as if I was prepping for my agency. Studied, studied so hard, right? And then as he's talking, you, you're always it's wearing you, going okay, he'll because you never know when he's going to throw to you, and you never know when a convers- when a question will be aimed at you. So your brain's constantly going, if he throws to me, what will I say? What will I say? What will I say? Mm. And then in the middle of it, Margaret Thatcher dies. Oh gosh! And this is n- I don't think this has ever happened before or since on Q and A. It's been going for more than ten years. Because mm, now breaking news: Margaret Thatcher has just died. International Women's Day, women's panel. Jermaine Greer was there. Bunch of people there. And my brain's going, Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. What do I know about Margaret Thatcher? Like mm. rummaging through the files, and I'm like. I got nothing. Yeah, I wouldn't have a thing. I saw the Meryl Streep movie. Yeah. I thought she was great. <laughs> yeah. Meryl Streep, I mean. Like, <laughs> I got nothing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I so I just, I don't do it to myself anymore. And, and I, you know, I've got to be honest, I'm also not asked. Like, um, I had a, a bad incident. I had one bad incident on the Today Show and then I had a bad incident on the project and the project didn't ask me back anymore. And then the Today Show stopped asking me after that incident on the project because they said I was tarnishing their brand. Oh, wow. Yeah. And now uh, Channel 9 won't have anyone from Mamma Mia on because they've got a competitive women's site. Um, So it's actually – and you know what? It's After your ego goes – Oh, they don't call me anymore and whatever. Yeah. It's actually a massive relief. Yeah. It's a massive relief because with TV, it's you always feel like I should do it. Like, oh, TV. Like, I'm going to be on TV. Like, mm. But I actually hated it. <laughs> and then I was just like, you know what? You don't have to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not until you sort of sometimes get – Though even when the opportunities are taken away and you have a moment to reflect and you go, actually, like, this is much less stressful yeah, not having to yeah. come up with opinions about stuff that I don't have opinions exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah, it can, be, it can be very high stress and very terrifying. And if you – I've worked with a couple of people that, uh, that I have no idea how you could go out unprepared. And I've worked with some people who leave themselves so exposed. That's me. So I'm. I, when oh, I used to read do those shows, oh, I do. But I mean, on that when you when I was doing the Today Show, mm. they'd send you the links. They'd only to finalise the stories that you'd have to talk yeah. about. They'd send you the links often when you're sitting in the makeup chair. Yeah. And you spend longer getting your makeup done and your hair done than you do on set <laughs> yeah, talking. True. Yeah. So it's not like you get a lot of time to prepare and. In actual fact, all they want from you is some snappy, polarizing sound bite that lasts for fifteen seconds, and so you deliver that. Mm. Um, something like Paul Murray, I I stopped doing because you have to prepare a lot because yeah. it is more in depth. But also, I'm really interested in in lots of things, but the combativeness of it, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And yeah. I admire people that do, but 
I don't want to have to be the one from the left or the one from yeah. the, this one. Like, I don't want to be boxed in and, and have to deliver an opinion on things that I don't know about. Mm. And I think, I mean, you've got plenty of your own places to voice yeah, the opinions exactly. that you have, you know, so it's not like you you need to do it. Um, so what you were, um, when you were editor at Cosmo, were you the editor there until you went and covered the, the yeah. Dolly Cleo and Cosmo yeah. collectively? So I edited Cosmo for seven years and then I really wanted to get out of magazines, but I was trying to get pregnant at the time and I knew that it wasn't the right time to take on a new challenge. Mm. So my boss just said, look, why don't you go across all three of them? Um, Which was fine. It was just three times the same stuff. Do you look back at any point and think, because I think to myself, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about the question to ask you and I was like, wow, 24, if I look back at myself at 24, at the time I probably thought I was doing doing all right. I mean, I was such a broken human back then. I was like seriously broken. And I look back and I go, oh my God, I was barely holding it together. Like how could I have ever? And I think to myself, my gosh, running an office full of people, being an editor at that age, when you look back at yourself now- Do you think, how the heck did I do it? Yeah, of course. I mean, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I think that um, naivety slash ignorance can be helpful in some ways. Um, And I think that, you know, talking about black and white, things are much more black and white when you're younger and and you have pretty unshakable self-confidence, or you can. But it's only as you get older and you get knocked more times Mm. that you do start to see the value in the shades of grey and you do realise how much you don't know. Mm. Like I thought I knew a lot more at, at 20 and 24 than I do at 45, that's for sure. Yeah. But do you think that there's a, a, a kind of pressure that comes from having that kind of success at that early age? Because that's something that people build and build and build and build and build and then maybe in their 30s or 40s or yeah, whatever, they're like, right. okay, I finally get to be the editor. And for you, it was like 19, you're doing work experience, 24, you're editing. Does it almost set up a kind of, I don't know, are you 32 and you go, do I retire now? Like Yeah. What? Um, well, it's funny because I thought 24, I thought 25 was just like a really unambitious, old, sad goal because Lisa had been the editor of Cos- of uh, Dolly when she was 21. Yeah, right. And so, and I'm very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, 25, like that's middle aged. Because <laughs> when you're 19, 25 seems Feels really old. old. Yeah, and when does. you're 24, 25 <laughs> seems really old. Yeah. Um, the people here at Mamma Mia who are most anxious about getting older are the ones in their 20s. Yeah. Um, but no, I felt that it was a big relief and particularly because I then got pregnant. So it meant that the anxiety that I see in many women about what having a baby will do to their career and their career path wasn't there for me because I had already done, it. done my dream. Like mm. this was it. I was there. Yeah, right. So I didn't have any ambitions past that. I didn't dream of being the editor of the Women's Weekly. I didn't dream of being a publisher. I just wanted to be the editor of a women's magazine and I was and oh my God. Mm. Um, so despite that ambition getting a bit derailed by by the aftermath of having a baby when I decided that I wanted to quit Cosmo and maybe edit a parenting magazine mm-hmm. and luckily everyone just ignored me until the hormones subsided and <laughs> I pulled myself together. I, I did feel that I that I wanted to keep achieving things but I felt that I could relax oh, because I'd nice. got there. Yeah. That's a lovely and I still, feeling. I still wanted Cosmo to be number one and it wasn't. And, yeah. and so there was that. And I've always been very driven and what's next, what's next, what's next. And part of what caused my marriage to collapse, although it didn't didn't have the same effect in my career, was that speeding ahead. So while I was very content 
to build foundations and I had built foundations in my magazine career, even though 24 seems so old, Mm. so young, I'd done five years working with the best in the business. So I felt like I was ready. My personal life had been going at a million miles an hour and, you know, meeting my husband, then getting pregnant after nine months, then um, getting pregnant again and then getting married and then losing a baby. And it had been fast, 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 fast. And then getting divorced, uh, getting separated. So I suppose I was still racing ahead there, but without having built the foundations. But Mm. fortunately in my career, I've built foundations. So you finished up um, as editor to concentrate on having family and no I didn't I I I did seven years and then I was like I can't do this anymore Mm. I'm like 32 I'm in the new I'm on the in the media for the fact that Cosmo had run an oral sex story and had been pulled off the stands in supermarkets and I remember doing an interview with American Rosso and they thought it was hilarious and one of and one of my son's friends said I said to their mum oh, I heard Luca's mum on the radio she said the word penis and they thought that was hilarious and I just thought you know, and I could also empathise with the people who had complained about a magazine with the words oral sex lessons on yeah. the cover being at the checkout because mm-hmm. my kid was about seven at that time or six. And I uh, and that's when I realised I'm not the right person to be doing this. Mm. I don't – I'm not living and breathing it. It needs someone who's fearless and who's more in the demographic. And so – uh, you know, I was looking at other things and watching, had a couple of job offers to move to New York and edit over there. And I thought, a bit like TV, I thought I should really want to do this, but I just didn't want to. And, mm. and I'd sort of hid behind my kid and my husband and I was like, oh, but we can't possibly, because we got, we'd got back together by this stage. And I was like, oh, we couldn't move to New York for this job because of you and because of Luca. And he was like, no, babe, you know, if you really want to do this, we can make it work. Like it would be an adventure. And that forced me to confront the fact that I just didn't, didn't want, want to it. do it. I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. And I went and talked to John Alexander, who was um, for, for career advice, who was the then sort of head of PBL and, and the, the company where I worked. And I said, you know, I've been offered this job and it's New York, man, and like editing in New York. And they want to groom me to edit Cosmo in New York. And how can I say no to that? And he said, you know, once upon a time, New York would have been the heart of publishing and the top of the tree. But he said, now Hearst and other magazine companies send people here to Australia to look look at what we do because what we do is considered best practice. Mm. And you don't have to go. And it's almost like he gave me permission. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, okay, so I can still be ambitious and still want to do things and learn things without taking that job. And mm. it was really great. And I, I, was really, um, I was really happy that I didn't go. And so I stayed here. Um, got pregnant, had another baby, didn't know what I was going to do, ostensibly went on maternity leave, but knew I was done. Mm. So I tried to break my contract. Oh, I tried to resign basically. And they said, oh no, you're in contract for another year. And they said, but uh, would you think about going to Channel 9 and working with Eddie? Because he's really keen to have a woman on the executive team. And Eddie had rung rung me and said the same thing to me. And because Channel 9 was part of the same company and James Packer was supportive of that and John Alexander was supportive of that, they sort of ushered that and, and Eddie wanted that. It, it seemed like the logical thing and the money right. was great and they let me work part-time in the office and because I still had a six-month-old. And um, it was just the path of least resistance, if mm-hmm. that sounds possible. And also I'd been in the warm bosom of women's magazines for 15 years. Yeah, I knew it was going to be hard at nine, but I thought, look, at least the roller coaster will be exciting. <laughs> um, what I didn't know is how it would just destroy my self-confidence, my reputation – um, you know, give me massive anxiety and 
have just such a detrimental effect on on me as a person. What do you think it was about that that had that effect? Um, I'd always, as I said, worked in this warm bosom of women's culture. So I went, walked into Channel 9 at the worst possible time in the trajectory of Channel 9. Kerry Packer had just died, so the gloves were off. Because mm. when he was alive, you know, the media were a bit careful. You don't kick Channel 9 because you don't want to make an enemy of Kerry Packer. Yeah. But now that he had died, um, literally a few months before, and it was all gloves were off. They'd had a series of sort of emergency CEOs. Morale was very low. Eddie had been brought in um, and the company was being stripped back for sale and readied for sale to private equity. So it was at a time of really, really, really low morale and that is a very dangerous time to go into a company because what I've learnt since and what we're seeing play out now in the White House is when morale is low, that's when people leak Mm. because they feel that it's the only power that they have and... Um, it becomes this vicious cycle. And so I'd never experienced that before. Like I wasn't – I also – magazines aren't interesting to the mainstream media, but anything that happens at Channel 9, that book, Who Killed Channel 9, had just come out. Mm. Um, So there was a real feeding frenzy going on at 9 before I got there, just before I got there. And no one in the executive – Eddie wanted me there, but no one else wanted me there. And his deputy, Jeff – Oh, my God. I was going to say Jeff Buckley. My brain's not very good this morning. Um, and then I was going to say Jeff Bridges. My brain's going through all the Jeff files. Anyway, it'll come to me. It would have um, been interesting if yeah. either of those blokes exactly. were especially one back from the dead. Um, I know. Oh, how great was, that? was he? Mm. Um, nobody wanted me there. And so, you know, I, I write uh, in, in my book, Work Strife Balance, about the lessons that I've learned in hindsight. And it's taken a lot of years to learn what those lessons are. But one of them is be very, very wary of going into a role that doesn't yet that hasn't ever existed before a new role not in a fast-growing company i mean at mamma mia we're creating new roles constantly um especially when we were a startup but in a really established company if someone is trying to make cultural change and you are the instrument of that cultural change which Mm. i was eddie was trying to shake things up because he knew quite rightly that a table of 20 executives trying to work out what women wanted to watch on tv was probably not going to do a very good job of that Mm. and they needed different input um so he brought me in as a change agent. Change agents aren't popular because people don't want to change. Yeah. And I had no TV experience, um, so I had no respect. And I thought, hey, I've got 15 years of media experience and what women want and running a business and all these things. And that just didn't didn't cut it. So people started leaking. Um, it was just awful. It was mm. just really, really, really awful. It was a, it was a toxic, toxic time and I, I – I'm sure it's not the same now, but back then it was. I, I, there was also not enough a structure around this role. I mean, Eddie's reasons for wanting me there were completely sound, but that wasn't a job. It was just an idea. Yeah. So how could you succeed in a job that didn't actually exist on paper? I didn't ask for KPIs. I didn't say what would success in this role look like. I didn't have specific responsibilities other than just being a kind of a sounding board for Eddie and a way, like a tool to sort of, try to change a culture that actually didn't want to change Mm. so um yeah it taught me about culture as well and and i learned that you can't be one person that's trying to change culture and i learned also that to just rip the band-aid off because at first i knew it was a disaster from the second day but i thought maybe i'm just uncomfortable maybe i'm just out of my comfort zone because i've always worked with women and i've always been able to establish i've either worked in a culture 
established by someone I really admire, like Lisa Wilkinson, or I've been able to determine my own culture because magazine editors, you might work in a big company, but you determine the culture of your particular um, magazine. And I don't know if it's the same in radio, You mm. can whether you can establish a culture on your show. Within your little show. Within yeah. your little show. Yeah. But I couldn't do that, obviously, when I, when I came in at nine and I was very much an outsider in someone else's culture and it was not a cultural fit. So I've learnt the importance of culture and, and we've seen at Mamma Mia that cultural fit is so important and it's actually easier to upskill someone than to try to force two cultures together. Mm. And, of course, you know, I hope it goes without saying I'm talking about actual culture, yeah. someone's religion or their race or their sexuality. <laughs> yeah. It's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about the way someone likes to work yeah. and we have tried and failed on several occasions and now it's one of the most important pieces we do in hiring to make sure the cultural fit is right. And in terms of how you establish a culture, what is the culture of an organisation, there's a great book called Scaling Up and it talks about um, having core values. What are the core values of your business? And when you work out what your core values are, they are the things that establish your culture. And it then becomes really easy to identify who's going to work and thrive in that environment and who's not. And so startup and scale-up culture isn't for everyone, just like big company corporate culture is not for everyone. Mm. Um, And most people are somewhere in between. But they're very different. There have been some people that I've really wanted to employ who I adore and admire so much, but they're just people who are more comfortable in a big, big company Mm. and wouldn't enjoy the fast pace of a smaller company like ours and and vice versa there are some people who really like startup culture where it's really by the seat of your pants and as we grew and had to have more structure they haven't been able to grow with us because they've wanted to work somewhere smaller and Mm. and less you know less with less boundaries it's like having a long-term goal uh, a long-term outlook with things right so if you get the culture right you want people who are going to go gosh this is the right environment for me today tomorrow and in three years because i'm going to be the greatest worker and i'm going to love being here and i'm going and that's when you get the best out of people but you see some people wedged into organizations and they're like you hate it the organization hates you like nobody's doing their best work what is this nightmare how is this working for anybody and i heard someone um in hr not here but somewhere else wants to describe it as sometimes you've got to free people's futures yeah and that means going you know what you're great but this fit isn't right mm-hmm. you should go and find somewhere we're going to free your future mm. and you've got to find somewhere that that you're better suited to where you can thrive because we don't think you can thrive in this environment because mm. no one wins when no. there's a not with a lack of cultural fit like me at nine i was miserable i wasn't contributing anything of value at nine wasn't working there mm. so it was lose lose and getting out of there after 7 months and 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 freeing my future paved the way for me to be able to create something else which was ultimately better for me and ultimately better for nine it's an interesting crossroads though because i think sometimes and we talked a bit, a bit about it at the beginning but the that idea that sometimes people who are faced with that environment think oh gosh i've got to try and find another job somewhere or i've got to wait for that phone to ring but in that situation i, I always think the the one thing that you find in people's successful people's story is catastrophic failure yeah you know like i am broken at the bottom of the barrel welcome to my world yeah you know and i've had to turn my life around and find a way out some people get overwhelmed by that some people pull their socks up and are like this is 
I don't know anyone who wouldn't be overwhelmed by that because mm. it's overwhelming. Mm. And when it's happening happening to you in the moment, it can be terrifying and disorienting and lonely and mm. humiliating and a hundred different things. And it was all of those things when I left nine. But knowing that I was going to leave, I fought hard for redundancy. And I'd fought hard. That the, the smartest thing I'd done in making a whole lot of dumb decisions to go to nine was to get a clause in my contract that specified the name of the CEO that I was there to advise so that when Eddie left, I was redundant because how could I advise someone that wasn't there anymore? And I asked for redundancy and they didn't want to give it to me because I'd been essentially with the company for 15 years and no boss wants to give you redundancy. They just want you to quit. So they wanted to make it so unpleasant that I would quit. And then I, they, then the, the, while pretending that they wanted me to stay. So they would say, but we don't want you to go. And I'd say, but there's no job for me here. And they said, oh, you can be the head of hair and makeup. Oh, good Lord. And I said, I'm a journalist and an executive and let's pretend you didn't say that. And no offence to the head of hair and makeup, but that's like me being the head of engineering. I know nothing, you know, Mm. because I'm a girl. Mm. I know about people being pretty. And I, I stood and it was uncomfortable. And if it wasn't for my husband saying stay, I would have just bailed. I would have just quit because it was so... Women go into fight or flight and they do this in relationships and they do this in workplaces where they feel under threat. And sometimes in relationships, they are actually under threat and they do just have to get the hell out. But other times it's just painful and hard and awful. And so they just go, I don't want anything. I just need to get away from you. And that's how I felt. But had I done that, I would have been because Mm. the phone didn't ring. Had I not had that redundancy, I would not have had that buffer to spend a year or more than a year earning not one cent. In fact, you know, losing money because I was working 18-hour days and not able to take another job, even if one had been offered, which it wasn't, um, on building Mamma Mia. And so stealing that out and getting that redundancy was how I started this company. I think that that's such a, you know, people don't spend enough time talking about that financial kind of thing because it's yeah. icky to people, you know. But yeah. I think that is, if, if you can squirrel away, if you want to make a change in your life or you want to take a leap, if you can squirrel away enough money to be able to not work for six months or a year or whatever, yeah. it gives you a sense of, it doesn't matter if I don't, I, I am going to put food on the table, I'm going to pay rent, yeah. I don't have to worry about all of those things that can take your eye off the price because you're right, when you're starting something from scratch like that, it is all consuming. There cannot be, mm. I need to be going and, and applying for jobs all the time because I've got bills to pay. You need to just be able to put your mind to it and anybody who's started up a company like this has had to start like that with full focus. When you sat down and decided you were going to do that, was it a conscious decision that something like what we're sitting in right now is what you were trying to build? Or was it literally like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just going to start blogging? It was a bit of both, Mm. you know. It was a bit of both. And, And just on what you just said, it's so true. But I would also caution people that some things need to start as a side hustle. I'm a big believer in the side hustle because I had the buffer of that redundancy. Plus I was married. I had a partner. and I. But I also did have other income. I had a newspaper column. I had a couple of little gigs of an appearance here and like every second week. Will Anderson actually was lovely. He called me. Two two guys called. Two people called me. The phone didn't ring at all. Two people called me. Will Anderson called me and said, come on my show every week as a guest. And I think that was like $200. And then Tom Malone, the then EP of the Today Show, said, 
come on and do a, you know, news in the news of the day kind mm. of segment in the morning. And I was like, I can't go back into Willoughby. And he's like, yes, you can. It's not that scary floor. <laughs> it's just us and it's family and it's Lisa and it's Carl and it's me and you'll be yeah. protected. And those two guys believing in me saved me. And then I had um, a newspaper column with um, Fairfax. And so I did have income coming in and I had my redundancy. I think that it's also your passion or your vocation or if you want to start a company, you also can have a job. That job does not have to be your heart's desire. It does not have to feed your soul and be what you, how you identify yourself. It can be working bar work. It can mm. be, you know, I was, there was an author at the Sydney Writers Festival who, I've forgotten his name, but he's an author who writes fantastic books, but he's a palliative care nurse. That's how he pays his bills. Yeah, right. And Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this, you know, the incredibly famous author of when she was starting her writing career she had a whole lot of jobs and then she had her writing that she was you know she calls it a, her her vocation it's something she couldn't not do mm. and eventually it got to the point where that became her job it became how it how she earned her money but again I write in the book about don't confuse a hobby a job a career and a vocation because occasionally they overlap but mm. they don't have to so just because you really love baking cupcakes does not necessarily mean you should give up your job as a lawyer and start a cupcake business. Maybe you have a little side hustle where you do a little thing on Facebook where you start catering cupcakes on weekends or out of hours Mm. and you see how that goes. But you keep your job as a lawyer and you have your side hustle and sometimes your side hustle turns into something and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes just because something doesn't pay you money – Podcasting is a good example for many people and so is blogging. Mm. Just because you can't make money out of it necessarily doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Yes. And I would argue if you're going into it just to make money, it's probably not going to work. Yeah, and the only way it's ever going to be a success is if – with, when you do it, you can't not do it, even though it doesn't break, bring money in. You know, it's like a vacation. This, yeah. Can you not? Exactly. So I couldn't. Mm. Annabelle Crabb says, people go, oh, how do you do it? And how do you follow it? And I don't know how you do it. And she says, you know, if I wasn't earning money for talking about politics, I would still be following it yeah. for free. Yeah. So the way I see it, I get to do this thing I love to do and I get paid for it. Mm. So that's awesome. Now, it's not, she, she can't not follow politics so she's lucky that she's been able to turn that into an income but just because you can't make money from it doesn't mean it doesn't have value i also think the good thing about the side hustle is you are amazed at what you think you are passionate about when you actually try and do it five to seven days a week for 18 hours a day like you're not passionate about it anymore you know and you go oh this looked really amazing the number of people that i've met who have wanted to be travel writers who've dropped their job gone and and you go oh it's really tough and you don't make much money and it's not the fun amazing job that you see on instagram it's actually really shitty hard work and you don't get to make the money that you thought you might make you know it's those kind of lofty dreams that like the shiny magazine that you walk into you're like this doesn't look like what it did on the outside you have to sometimes give these little things a dip of the toe so true and go yeah, this really kind exactly, of isn't for me. and that, and 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 there's nothing wrong with finding that out. Like yes. I see so many people start blogs and then they go, "Whew, you know, that's a bit much. I'm not going to do that for a while." Work. Or, or I'm going to do a podcast and then they just sort of trail off. Like, yeah, yeah it's such so good what you say. You you, you have to not be able to not do it yeah yeah it's yeah. got to be in your blood and you're yeah. like this is this is in me i don't care that i'm not making money i just want to do it and make it so were you writing every single day were you six posts a minimum six posts a day yeah, every I... day so then i got pregnant again which is a really good thing because i had not if i had not got pregnant with my third child about a year into mamma mia 
or six months into Mamma Mia probably, I was feeling that uncomfortable and that lonely, to be honest, because I'm a, I'm a social creature. Mm. I like – I'm very introverted, but I like working with groups of women. Like I really love it. Mm. I love being around people. And um, I like being part of a team. And I was alone in my house in my pyjamas with my laptop and I was creating this community online, which was awesome – but I was feeling that uncomfortable lack of identity, lack of relevance, I suppose, mm. um, wanting to be part of something bigger. It wasn't growing as fast as I wanted it to. And so I was just thinking about maybe I'll go back to corporate world. Maybe I'll go and get a media job. Because also I wasn't, I wasn't making any money out of it and I couldn't see how I was going to. Because for me, I thought the end game was someone coming and buying me mm-hmm. what I was that was ridiculous because there was nothing to buy there mm. was me in my lounge room in my pajamas you can't <laughs> buy that like I had a site that was making no money yeah. and it was me yeah like you can't buy a person <laughs> yeah. and uh, ironically that's not ironically but smartly that's the first thing that my husband when he came on board after about 18 months identified was you are the single point of failure this is not a business this is you this is a passion project this is you sitting behind a computer at home that's not scalable it's also unsustainable, six and posts a day. And it's unsustainable. And I was burning out. So oh, I, I had this baby before I knew that I was going to need a few days off. So I pre, I squirreled away extra content and I had it scheduled four or five posts a day for the 10 days I thought that I might not be able to post because I'd be in hospital. And then I went into labour early and I quickly, while I was sitting there with my labour pains, I was at the kitchen bench changing all the schedule, on the, all the dates on the scheduled posts. Um and there's no maternity leave when you're obviously self-employed. Yeah. There's no leave of any kind, mental health leave, bereavement leave, sick leave, annual leave. So I had to keep. I just had to keep going. And that was fine because I, I really like being busy. But um, yeah, that's, that's when Jason went, you know, this needs to be a site that's edited by you with lots of contributors. And I was like, no, that won't work because the audience is here for me. And I, I was very, sc- not scared, but I, I, I felt like I was very beholden to the... F- followers that I had and the audience that I had and I was like scared that if I wasn't 100% there for them that they would drift away Mm. and that can be really claustrophobic and really limiting and you know my husband was completely right of course people whinged because they didn't want the little bar there's always resistance they didn't want the little you know their favorite little local bar to become a big corporate chain and then you know turn into a big pub at Westfield or whatever. Mm. Um, I'm mixing my metaphors, shopping and alcohol, <laughs> two of my favourite things. Um, but that resistance became really constricting for us and really limiting for us. So I was always in in fear of upsetting the loyal audience and Jason always had the bigger picture. And that's been why it's been good for us because I've been about the creation of content and walking in his shoes and he's always been the strategy. Where are we going? What are we doing? Um, and strategy is just my Achilles heel. I hate, I hate mm. it. It's my kryptonite. So we've been a good team in that way. And within a year of him coming on board, we had an office. We had a couple of people working for us, um, and we'd started. He'd started to map a path for us to um, turn it into a business from just. Yeah, me behind my computer. So did you employ people and bring people on before you'd kind of worked out how to make money out of it? It was like we're gonna we know we need to churn out this kind of content. I can't be doing six posts a week. We know what it needs to be. We'll yeah. build the business and then build yeah. it and it will come. Yes, yes. It it was a bit of both of those things. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So we had to invest and we had invested not just our time but our money as well in hiring people, in growing the business. And at that time, it wasn't a business. So, um, you know, people will sometimes bang, oh, Mamma Mia doesn't pay people. It's like in the early days before we were a business, 
we had a big audience yeah. and people wanted to write in the same way that I wanted to intern at Clio. Mm-hmm. People wanted to be published on Mamma Mia because there was something in it for them. Yes. Yeah. Um, I remember writing early for yeah. you guys and it was exactly that. It exactly. was like there was a, a reciprocal relationship course, there. I gave course. you content, but it also means something to be published on Mamma Mia. Of course. And, yeah. and we would do links, we would plug books, we would mm. help with profile. You knew that that was the only way that you could reach an audience for the same reason that I go on Q and A, or I have gone on Q and A for free, yep. or I've written for the Huff Post for free. Yep. It's a calculation, mm. and if there's something in it for me, and I think that again, back to this thing that the value of everything does isn't just money. I'm, yes. You know, I know you can't eat on exposure, but for some people, exposure is worth something. It's actually there's a tangible value of that, and no one is forcing you to work for free. No one is forcing you to write for free, to do anything for free. But if you think there's something in it for you and it's a reciprocal exchange of mutual benefit, then don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Mm. So um, obviously when it, when it got to the point where we could afford to pay contributors and we've always obviously paid our full-time staff, we did. And as soon as we could afford to do that, we did. And we always have and we pay competitively. You know, imagine going, Hi, you know, some people still don't ever even invoice us mm. because that's not why they did it. And the other thing that some people find hard to realise is that people – will often write, particularly women, will express something to feel heard and to feel seen. And there's really something in that. There's a there's a, a tangible benefit for them in that. And I know that because I have in the past written and expressed myself. And the benefit that you get back when you express particularly something that's painful is you get it back in people going, oh my God, I thought it was just me. Mm. You get reassurance mm-hmm. and you feel seen and you feel heard and understood by people and of course I'm not saying money is not important but to say there is money is the only benefit you can ever get from devoting your time to something or or your services to something I just don't think that's true no and I also think there's merit in just enjoying working on a project or the you know we did Pulmari for free why why do you do Pulmari for free you do it because not out of the goodness of your heart, not because Sky News has no money, not mm. because Foxtel and the Murdochs can't afford to pay their contributors. You don't have to. Mm. No one's putting a gun to your head. Yeah. Obviously, for reasons and, and you know, part of it was exposure, part of it is that I enjoyed the mental challenge, mm. part of it is ego because yeah. it's nice to know. And so everyone has different reasons for doing things. Yeah. And, um, you know, it frustrates me enormously that we cop it where – a lot of other people don't and also there's a lot of misinformation out there about this idea that we somehow exploit people or don't pay people um, and, and I, I just I will always defend the idea of of working for free if you want to. Yeah, of course. Yeah, if you are being held against your will and you've got a whole bunch of interns (laughs) strapped to the desk here that cannot leave at any point, then that's one thing. But if people are volunteering their time and coming in and going, I want to be around this because I want to be a media, like you did at Clio, and just go, I want to be here and I'm happy to be in the room. I think that there's huge merit in that. Do you look back uh, now and think, my God, I did it. No, never. No? I mean, never. I know you're not at the top of the tree yet. There's much more to do. Oh, my God, but I'm in the weeds. Yeah, you're in the weeds. We're all in the weeds, right? Yeah. But six posts a day sitting there trying to schedule stuff while you go and have a baby and thinking, oh, my goodness, it's just me, to an office full of people and, you know, like it, there is a sense of visible achievement here. Yeah, but it's funny. When you own the business and Sally Obermeter um, came in the other day to do an interview and she's – got uh you know she works in television but she's also got her own business with swish which is her e-commerce site um and she's got her smoothies and all those things 
it's different. Like some people, usually people that work for other people will come in and go, wow, it's so big and that's amazing. People that work, have their own business come in and go, wow, there are a lot of people here because they know that every one of those people need a computer, needs annual leave, needs a salary, needs... <laughs> this is my... You know what this I mean? Is where, this is the side that I'm sitting on because, yeah. yeah, I watched a father go bankrupt after having a big company and ever yeah. since then I have been it's terrified daunting. of bricks and mortar. It's daunting. And employees. So, and, you know, mm. I don't walk in and go, wow, aren't we amazing? There's so many people. Although, you know, I, I have pinched myself moments like we had an all hands this morning and you look around and there are people calling in from different offices that we have and and you think this is great but it's also this is f- scary yeah it's a big responsibility <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah it yeah. is a big responsibility it's not just you anymore if it, go, yeah, if no. it goes under it's not like oh well I'll just close my computer and exactly. go. <laughs> like, go to Starbucks and yeah. use their free Wi-Fi no yeah. it's not that so yeah. um, you know and, and Jason and I often talk about that we don't and I don't think anyone in business does spend a lot of time going hey let's just say to ourselves this is a good day. Like yeah. this is great that we that we won this campaign or mm. that we hired this person or that we've reached this benchmark or that we've launched this new podcast. You're scrambling so fast and putting out so many fires and working out what new things you want to do and how you could have done th- things differently. There's not a lot of time for back padding mm-hmm. um, in business. And I wonder if there's anyone that sits at the – like I wonder if Rupert Murdoch goes, wow. Look what I've done. Like, yeah. I bet he doesn't. I bet he's just like, why don't we do this? And I want to fix this. And I want to buy this. And I want to, you know. Blah, blah, blah. I just think that if you're an intrinsically ambitious person, you do that. And when I was a magazine editor, every time the magazine landed on my desk, I never went, wow. I was always like, I wish I'd have done that differently. And I wish yeah. I could have done that. And why didn't we do that and what can we do better next time well that's the exhaustion of being that type of person it's like fabulous because you get to do a lot of different things and you feel great and all of that kind of stuff but the unfortunate thing is that you don't ever sit down and go well this is great I'm just going to you think what else could I do what oh I crossed that off my to-do list I better put another nine things on yeah you know there's never a moment where you go and now I rest exactly and also (laughs) because our core purpose for our business is making the world a better place for women and girls that's not going to be something that gets ticked <laughs> off the list anytime soon. <laughs> so, for example, you know, we were we were at a strategy session, my worst nightmare, um, mm. at the end of last year and we were talking about new competitors that were coming to the market and, oh, my God, and these big people and it's scary and now everyone thinks, oh, I'll just do a women's site and mm. what do we do? And, and then we went to have a lunch break and we were sitting there and, and we'd done last year, um, sparked by, by um, the experience of Paul Murray and myself and, and a girlfriend called Beck Sparrow, all of us had lost babies and we wrote an ebook together um, that we wanted to release free and we wanted to do a week pregnancy loss awareness week that we did at Mamma Mia and we put that ebook out we made it freely available for anyone who wanted to download it we did a week of content of real stories and a whole bunch of stuff and um, we were sitting at, at lunch and and our managing director her best friend's son has got a brain tumor and is, is very unwell and we wanted to talk about I said, you know, I've been wanting to do something, a support, some kind of support page or something for for women whose friends are going through cancer. Like how can everyone knows someone who's got breast cancer and how can we do something? And we started talking and then someone said, maybe it's a series of different things for people whose kids have got cancer. And, people, and someone interrupted and said, you know what, guys, you know what's different about us to all our competitors that are coming into the women's market? 
they're not sitting around having these conversations yeah. about how to make the world a better place. And mm. I'm not saying, aren't we amazing? But it's like there is no financial benefit to us. Mm. In fact, it all comes at a financial cost because it is a resource cost, it is a personal cost. You know, you're not going to get a, spen- a sponsor for Cancer Week. Yeah, You're yeah. not going to get a sponsor for Pregnancy Loss Awareness Week. Yeah. Um, but it's part of our core purpose. It's part of why we come to work today. Do we come to work today just to make money? I guess some people do, but it's about doing something a bit bigger. And when when I say making the world a better place for women and girls, that's not just about pregnancy loss awareness week and cancer. Blah, blah. It's also about making a woman feel informed. Um, we wrote a, an article about the plight of homeless women and, and how they can't afford tampons. Mm. And a woman, um, an incredible woman, decided that she was going to start a charity, which she did on the back of that article called Share the Dignity, which has been a phenomenal success and basically supplies free sanitary products for homeless women. Wow. And so there are, there are ways that are like very much charity-based and, and, and altruistic mm. and there are ways that, you know, a woman sending or, or watching a video that makes her laugh or reading a story that makes her feel seen or heard or sharing a piece of information that explains what the hell's going on with James Comey mm, um, yeah. or listening to a podcast where, you know, it, it, Rebecca Judd talks about pregnancy. Mm. Um, there are so many different ways that you can help and support women. But I guess the difference between, you know, it comes down to core values and, and why we do what we do every day and why we come to work, I think it really helps once we were able to articulate that core purpose of our company, it really changed the way everyone felt about what they were doing. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? I think the worst thing is that no one cares about or no one even takes into consideration intentions anymore. And I think that um, everyone's very quick to jump on things and mm. jump on people for making mistakes in particular. But no one says, okay, this person made a mistake, but what were their intentions? And is the reaction in proportion to the mistake that they made? Thank you, social media. Yeah. It's, it's, I, it's really like reduced our conversation to 140 characters. Exactly. So it's not yeah. like, hey, it's a bit annoying. It's a bit unfortunate the way this happened, but I get that you were trying to do a good thing. And the best um, example I can give of that is the – you know, this week we've had a social media explosion that, that's, of course, turned into a media, mainstream media explosion around Carrie Bickmore and her attempt to raise money um, with beanies mm. for the disease, to help fight the disease that killed her husband oh, and the no. father of her child. And for people to somehow think, for people to somehow not think about what her intentions were and in fa- instead focus on the unfortunate coincidence that it happened to fall on the same day as another very different charity who was also trying to do amazing things mm-hmm. and somehow pit them against each other and say that Carrie was somehow this and that and arrogant. And to me, that's a loss of humanity. Yeah. It really is. And then everyone follows. So what's different, I guess, now about social media is that a couple of tweets, and we are, we've been guilty of this in the past and we always try not to be. I always say we will not write stories based on a couple of tweets yeah, and call that a backlash. Yeah. Because that's like someone, you know, we all used to yell at our TV or think things in our head or Mm. say things at the pub. And now all of that is out there. And somehow a grumpy tweet by someone is taken as evidence of 
I don't know, is somehow elevated to this level. And e- evidence of a wildfire too. You think about the yeah. proportion of the population that is on Twitter is minuscule in terms of the amount of weight that we give to it. Yeah. Like the number of people in the world is much smaller than most people think that are on Twitter. And also it's only the angry people. Yeah. And then you go, you deep dive into that and then you think that we're basing things and an entire week-long protracted, yeah. elongated, this is a disaster, you know, the media spins it and spins it and spins it. It's off the back of like five tweets. Yeah, yeah. and then it does become something. And Mm. then so then, you know, and I've been through this several times now, including this week, where I should know how it goes now because now the first thing you think is, oh, this is a misunderstanding. If I just explain the intention, people will get it. Doesn't work like that. And then as soon as you do that, it makes it worse. So then they demand that you apologise. So you try to get some facts out and then that makes them angrier. And then they demand you apologise and then you apologise and then you haven't apologised right. Mm. You haven't either done it quickly enough or used the right words or been sorry enough or been sincere enough. And then people will try to defend you or you will try to defend yourself and that will make it last longer. Mm -hmm. So what I've learnt now is that you have to say to everyone who wants to go out and defend you against all these horrible things, you have to say, please don't. And you have to not defend yourself you just have to waiting, wait for the beating to be over. And I don't mean to sound dramatic, no. but you actually do because the mob, like the mob the won't move. If they, if they detect any twitches in the body, they will not move on until they think that you have suffered and no one's come to your defence. And then finally, and then you have, it becomes mob mentality because people don't actually look at the source thing that happened Mm. or the source thing that said they're reacting to headlines, they're reacting to other people's tweets. So the reaction to the reaction to the reaction to then people are reacting to things that they think you said or did that you never did or said. And then there's no one out there defending you. So this becomes the established narrative and it takes about three days and it's bizarre and horrific to be in the centre of. And then it passes and you wonder what that was all about. And it's it's devastating. It's mm. just devastating. I, I won't pretend it's not. Um, but then you watch them, you know, I, I started Tuesday def- writing a post defending Carrie mm-hmm. and ended it trying to defend myself before I knew I just had to sort of lie down and, <laughs> and take it. Yeah. And it's really, you know, John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, is... Mm. Brilliant, great book. Brilliant, mm. brilliant book. And I just see it happen again and again to people in the public eye and not in the public eye. And it's just, it's a really weird thing. It's a, and I don't know how to, I don't know how to process it, and I don't know how to make sense of it. That pack mentality and that mob mentality is something that I just can't understand. And you know, I, I haven't been on Twitter for a long, long time because I used to love Twitter. Remember in the beginning of Twitter, yeah. it was great, and particularly as someone who worked at home was great and everyone would try to do tweets that other people thought were funny and everyone would try to be clever and everyone would sort of retweet each other and I got to sort of talk to people that I would never otherwise kind of talk to like Mark Colvin or Mm. Lee Sales that I would never cross paths with Mm. probably otherwise and you made friends on Twitter and you met people in real life that you'd been you know I employed people that I met on Twitter you know incredible journalists like Rick Morton who's now at The Australian who came to work for Mamma Mia because of how amazing I thought he was on Twitter Um, and then it just changed and Mm. it sort of became angry angry angry. and I used to defend Twitter I used to say it's not it's just a microcosm of the world. And then it just wasn't. Then it was – and then I realised I would only go to Twitter when I felt angry, when I would want to say something, 
And then I was like, ah, okay, so everyone goes to Twitter when they want to be angry, you know? Mm. And I know they say, oh, we're just a platform and free speech. But it's like, you know, if you go to Westfield and you sit in the food court and someone comes up and starts screaming abuse at you, Westfield don't say, oh, we're just a shopping centre. You know, (laughs) it's their responsibility to remove that person. And so I don't want to, you know, be part of that anymore. It'll be interesting to see. I think the pendulum swings in just about everything in life. You know, you think like yeah, even in I like hope so. you think eventually. I don't know. Even in politics, we've got you know Trump from Obama. We've got you know things sort of. Got, we think things have gone to the extreme yeah. of something, and then they come back and they swing the opposite way. But I feel like we've been in this kind of quagmire of, of Twitter for a what, what feels like a long time, that it's been like icky for a but, bit. But but I think that's you're absolutely right, and I think that's why people are on Instagram now. Yeah. So I used to be a huge Twitter user and now I've deleted it from my phone I wouldn't dream of going there unless it's breaking news in which case it can be a really helpful tool but I'm on Instagram yeah Um, it's just only so many photos of me in my pajamas at my computer no I I know (laughs) I know what you mean I do know what you mean I don't have anything to take photos of it's always me at my computer working but I also (laughs) just find it a way to switch off mentally a little bit, yeah, you know, I yeah. think Twitter, Instagram, you're right, can have its own problems, like mm. looking at everyone's hashtag blessed, hashtag gratitude, yeah. hashtag, <laughs> you know, lucky. Like, I think that's that can be excruciating. But then you just change who you follow. Like, mm. I think it's you're able to curate your feed in a way that you just can't on yeah, Twitter. That's true. That's true. What do you think's the best part about the business, um, the industry? What's the best part of the industry? I think the people. Media gets such. A hard time um, from the outside but people who work in the media um, are just they're just trying to do their best yeah. you know <laughs> we're not monsters yeah. we're just trying to have a go I think it's a really hard time it's a really hard time in media I love that we are able to communicate with women in real time and be agile in the way that we communicate with them. So it was digital and now it's video and it's podcast and it's written and it's all of those things. I love the way that it is evolving, that it is able to evolve. And this idea of connecting women has been something I've done and building communities of women is something I've done since I was 19. But the form of it has changed. Mm. Um, But the fact that women want to connect has not changed. And the things that want to, women want to connect over has not changed. But it takes some insight to be somebody uh, that can see where those opportunities are and to provide the platform for that conversation before people know. And I think you've done a really good job of of being the person that sort of steps out a couple of steps before people even know that they – and that's tough. Like Thanks. that's really tough. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is in the beginning and then everyone sort of jumps on. But I think people are finding – because we're, we're 10 years old this year, so we've got 10 years of learnings and learnings, yeah. failings yeah. and learnings. Um, and it's been interesting to see. We've had nine competitors come up against us in the women's space to go, oh, women, we can do that. <laughs> and it's actually really hard. It's really, really, really hard. It looks easy from the outside mm. and there's a lot of companies run by men that go – just do something women let's just take on mamma mia mm. come on they're doing it how hard can it be and it is really hard it's harder than it looks yeah it's harder than it looks and we still make mistakes we make mistakes every day but um you know we're driven by our core purpose and and ultimately we we just love it we mm. love doing it and i can't not do it as you say yeah. i can't not connect women and communicate with women i can't 
That's how you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, um, I hope so. Final five questions. Oh. Number one, biggest regret. Oh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> the internet. Um, <laughs> I regret every social media explosion that I've had. I regret things that I said or could have said differently or better. But I think the Cadell Evans one stands out in my mind as something that I really didn't see. And it was when I went on the Today Show and I was doing that news in five minutes and it was news of the week or news of the day and Cadell Evans had just won the Tour de France and because I don't follow sport, I wasn't that, that interested in that. And I was really pissed off with Carl because, you know, we have a brother-sister relationship. I, I adore him. But... Um, I wanted, you know, Amy Winehouse had died that weekend and um, there'd been that mass shooting in Norway and there was a lot of terror, you know, serious things that I wanted to talk about and acknowledge and he just, the producer said to me, no, Carl's just wiped the whole segment. He just wants to talk about Cadell. And I was, so I walked into that segment pissed off and I sat down and he's like, come on, we need to stand up and sing the national anthem. And I was pissed off and I said what I do believe which is I, I don't think sport and he's a hero he's a hero and I'm like I don't think sports people are heroes I don't I think that there's a lot in it for them you know achieving goals and getting sponsorship and having fame and adulation and money and I think that in our culture we, we put too much emphasis on that and it takes away from people who are doing things that don't get attention and that don't make them money and give them personal vindication and, you know, what followed was was out of all proportion to what I said. Mm. But what I regret about that is not saying that because that is what I believe, but I regret not understanding and not appreciating. It took me years to appreciate that sport, firstly, you get to choose your own heroes, you know. For some people, sports people are heroes. And I have no right to say who can be your hero and you have no right to say who can be my hero. So that was a big miss and that was disrespectful and I, I get that. It was also the timing of that was shit because – Cadell Evans had just done this amazing thing. He just won this thing. Like, who the hell was I? And mm. exactly, what was I doing there talking about sport anyway, <laughs> some may say. Um, so, and the third thing, I recognise that sport is just some very simple good news in a world that can be really horrible mm. and scary and mass shootings and people dying of drug overdoses. And this was just a really simple, happy moment. And sport can be that. And I feel like that during the Olympics. I can sit on my couch and feel very pleased with myself that someone else has swum really fast in a pool <laughs> without having to do anything. Um, and and I didn't appreciate that. And yeah. I, I suppose, um, you know, that I, I regret that. And, you know, obviously I regret, I regret what happened uh, this week with Roxanne Gay and I regret offending someone I, I admire and, and respect so much. Um, that I, I regret that too, of course. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard though in the conversation because you're right, you can try and explain yourself, but the bit yeah. that's missing from things is intention and yeah. people don't want to hear that bit. No. So you go, oh, okay, well, that will just, that I grab know. or whatever will be what exists by itself. And how you're defined and what people use as a weapon to beat you up with. Yeah, and the intention just won't, it will just disappear off into the yeah. distance and nobody and, will and care. And no one wants to hear it. <laughs> yeah. No one. Oh, no, it's a yawn fest. Like and back to what you said before about um, being open to having your mind change. It drives me crazy when people talk about, oh, politicians backflips and I know that's politics. But, you know, the fact that Julia Gillard came out and said she changed her na- mind about same-sex marriage. Barack Obama came out and said he changes his mind about same-sex marriage. I think it's great to change your mind because if you don't change your mind, who are you? You yes. know, if, if you have the same beliefs throughout your whole life and learning new things doesn't make you change your mind, women wouldn't have the vote. Neither would Indigenous Australians. Mm. Um, You would still be okay to be pinched on the bum at work. 
and, you know, have people smoking at their desks and blowing smoke in your face. Like, it's, it's okay and it's important to have your mind changed and it's also okay to say I was wrong. I did this and I thought this and I was wrong. You know, we, we want kids to, to learn you are not your mistakes. Mm. You can make mistakes. You can f*** up, but it's all right. You know, you can learn. And, and I worry about kids seeing pylons and seeing what happens to people who make mistakes in the public eye and just thinking, oh, Jesus. But it also amazes me that what is seen as a positive in everyday life is seen as a negative in public life. So you would never want to invite to your dinner party the bloke who is never wrong, who will not ever (laughs) say that anybody else at the table has a point that is not the one that he has. And yet that is what we expect of our politicians. And if they say, oh, I changed my mind or you're weak, you're weak. And you think same with people in the media and you think, hang on a second, how are we not applying our normal everyday social rules for the people within our your lives to and you're disgusting. Yeah. I mean, the things I've been called this week, you know, it, it, for for making a mistake, you know, or for changing your mind about something, for mm. saying I did this or I said this or I thought this, and now I've learnt a whole bunch of things and I can see where I went wrong and I've changed my view and I would do this differently next mm. time. Like, how is that not encouraged? That's what we that's what we try to teach our kids. Yeah, but like you were saying before, it's not good TV. It's like yeah, it's too it's, reasonable for television. It's not good know? sport. It's not good sport on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Um, your dream gig. I'm loving podcasts more than anything oh, else. Yeah. You know, podcasting's my thing. I would have always described myself as a writer. Now podcasting is my favorite medium. Mm. I'm just in love with it. And I now host three podcasts. I co host co host two of them and, and host one of them myself and I just love I just love it. And I've never been interested in radio. I've always found that world really, really daunting. Mm. But podcasting, oh man. I get it. I mm-hmm. get it. And it's good because you can really deep dive and have all of those conversations that we can't have on traditional media because they're too it's not sound grabby enough. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 you can meander around in the weeds yeah. and like, you know, have a decent conversation that really looks at all of the aspects of this and tries to get to the crux of where we're trying to get to and we can take time doing it and we can you know, we can be intelligent yeah. and, and we you don't have to throw to a commercial break or <laughs> yeah, a exactly. cash cow or yeah, that's it. back announce a song. Yeah, we don't have to talk about anything that you don't want to talk about or educate yourself on things that you don't have expertise in. You know, you can just talk about things that you can... podcasting now um, is what blogging was when I first started Mamma Mia, which is um, just this great creative medium that's just disrupted something that's very established. Mm. And it's suddenly it's like, no, commercial radio execs and, and radio execs are no longer the gatekeepers of audio content Mm -hmm. just like when blogging started newspaper editors were no longer the gatekeepers of Mm. of written content and i think that is a glorious thing i just think that that the the thing that people need to be mindful of is don't get into it thinking you're going to make money like it's awesome yeah but don't go i'm going to do a podcast and it's going to make lots of money i mean maybe it will the guys from crooked media are certainly going great guns with their um trump related podcasts in the u.s but that's an outlier, mm. you know. Most people, and we've monetized our podcast on Mamma Mia, but, you know, it, it doesn't say there's got no value. But, um, yeah, just get into it for the right reasons. And if money comes, then it's a wonderful yeah, bonus. Yeah. But if it doesn't, then exactly. it's not the end of the world. Um, is there a big idea that you have yet to get up? 
Constantly. I mean, every day I have an idea for a new podcast. My, my team just have to say, Mia, no. Isn't it tiring? I, I there's just not enough hours in the day. I know. <laughs> yeah. Look, we have a number and a number that we're working on mm. um, in, in the space of making the world a better place for women and girls. And, uh, yeah, watch this space. Uh, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? This. Oh, this. <laughs> I would be doing this. Like, I would be doing this. Even yeah. if it wasn't paying me money, I would be working as a waitress or in a shop or w- whatever, and I would be doing this. Mm. I would be creating content um, and trying to connect women because I don't know how not to. And finally, your advice for people wanting to get into the business. It's never been more easy to be discovered. You know, as, as journos are losing their job left and right, there's never been a time where there've been so many different ways to be discovered and to crack through. As I said, I've hired people I've met on Twitter. We've hired people whose posts have gone viral. The different ways that you can connect and and get known now. Um, don't think that you are going to get a paid job because that's probably not how you're going to get in. And if you are doing things for the right reasons and creating content for the right reasons. So a friend of mine again back another twitter story um uh, someone reached out to me on twitter many years ago and he was a uni student in melbourne and there was something about his tweet he just said can i interview you for my podcast and that's before anyone was podcasting and i was certainly wasn't and i just there was something about the way he asked that was just really polite and i was like yeah okay and i i did this this phono with him and he had this amazing voice and his name was sean power it oh, was his wow. real name. And he was 20 years old. Maybe he was 19 years old, actually. I think he was 19 years old. Mm. And I was just so impressed with him. He was just such a lovely young man. And mm. I sound like his mother and I could be. But um, I ended up just tweeting, this guy is going to go places. You know, radio producers, watch this space. Mm. And then um, Ben Fordham had a had a gig going as a producer in Sydney. And I put I suggested him that he go for it and I, I put in a good word with Ben and Ben and I say that we're his media godmother and media godfather because <laughs> he worked as a producer for Ben and I w- had hosted a show on Sky News at the time and I invited him on the show to be part of my panel. He was a 20-year-old uni student. Wow. But I had him on the show a couple of times and uh, then he got a job at Channel 9 and now he is a producer on 60 Minutes. Wow. He's still, I think, something ridiculous like 22 or 23 and he's flying around the world on 60 minutes and this, this guy's going to go to the top of the tree. You know, I just discovered him on Twitter. He just re- happened to reach out to me to ask if he could interview me for something and that's the way. And, and I'm not saying that his career is because of me but doors can open now in ways they never could have before. But, yeah, it's, it's just do what you do. Create stuff. If you want to get into the industry, start creating stuff That's the and most you'll get noticed. Yeah. If it's good, you'll get noticed. And also just do it. The way to get good at it is doing it. Doing it, not talking about it, not waiting for someone to pay you to do it. Mm. Just do it. Do mm. it. Make a podcast. Get your skills up. Get as many skills as you can in video, in podcasting, in written. And uh, yeah, there's, there's also lots of um, – you don't have to necessarily be – to create content, everyone needs content creation now. You know, Coca-Cola needs content producers. Mm. Um, real estate agents need content producers. <laughs> yeah. uh, those skills will not – and you can do some of that stuff if, you, if your dream is to write a novel or to do whatever. You can combine a few of those things together. Don't think that you have to get a job at the age or at 60 minutes to be considered a journalist. Mm. There's lots of different ways in. 
Sound advice. Uh, Mia, you are officially released. Thank oh, you so much. Thanks, Rach. <laughs> Great to see you. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Mia Friedman. She is a great example of how to turn career lemons into media-dominating lemonade. It's amazing walking into the offices of Mamma Mia and having a look around at all of the people and all of the infrastructure and thinking, wow, this used to be just one person in their pyjamas in a room. Certainly inspiration for anybody who wants to go it on their own, but also a great lesson in the fact that it takes a hell of a lot of work. Next week on the show, I am going to be chatting to the lovely Ben Fordham. I feel like I say every one of my guests is lovely, but they are. They're all just really nice people. We talk a lot about his early years starting out at 2UE, where he started as an intern and then got a full-time job, and making the big move to Canberra. We had a new boss in the newsroom called Julie Flynn, who'd been in Canberra for many years, and she was much feared, Julie Flynn, because mm. a really tough operator. And she came in uh, and she sat us all down and gave us all a a bit of a spray in the newsroom about how things were going and how things were going to have to be better. And I was like, oh, no. And then at the end of the meeting, she called me into her office and I thought, this isn't good. And she said, listen, you're going to Canberra. And I was 18, 19. Mm. She said, you're going to Canberra to be a political reporter. And I said, oh, look, I'd need to have a think and talk to mum and dad. She said, don't go on like an idiot. You're going to Canberra. It'll be the best thing to ever happen to you. So I packed up the red Mitsubishi Colt and drove to Canberra. And that that started a lifelong love of politics. I hope you'll join me next week for that chat. If you are enjoying the conversations, I'd love you to leave a review in iTunes. Big shout out to Liza Beth or Elizabeth Kate and Hardcore Troubadour for your reviews. And don't forget to subscribe in iTunes so you don't miss an episode. I'll see you next week. <laughs>